Well, do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 63, because the God we worship is a speaking God, and because He has spoken to the prophets and apostles and has caused what He has said to be written down, that means that the Bible, as we have it, is our teacher in everything. It tells us what to believe. It tells us how to behave. And one of the things it teaches us is how to react when we are confronted by the contrast between the promises of God on the one hand and the harsh realities of life on the other. This leads us to God's Word for today, because in the past few chapters of Isaiah, we've been given a vision, a vision of the latter-day glories that God has promised to the people, His own people. In those texts, we were constantly reminded of our Lord's utter adequacy, His power to accomplish this great work on our behalf. We have been enthralled, we've been captivated by the vision that was painted for us in those chapters, open-mouthed, highly charged as we think about all that God says He is going to do. Well, that's how we felt, I think, as we came to church. That's how we should have felt as we heard what we read and understood. But then, of course, there's Monday morning. We wake up Monday morning, having been at church the day before, and we turn on the television or we listen to the news or read the newspaper, and suddenly we're confronted by humanity as it is. We are confronted by human inadequacy and human failure. The reality of the church, even, seems as far away from New Zion that Isaiah pictures as it's possible to get. We find the covenant assembly of God's people in a wretched state, their vision of God obscured, their fellowship with God impaired, and that splash of ice-cold water reminds us of the memory or gives us the memory of nights of prayer and anguish, lament, when we've looked to the Lord for answers and actions that have never come, with our minds tortured with questions that were never answered. And in the turmoil and confusion of life, it is easy for us to lose our spiritual bearings. What are we to do? Well, what did the saints of old do? What does Isaiah encourage us to do here in chapter 63? Because here in this chapter, we hear the voice in verse 7, the voice of Isaiah as he stands in for all of the believing people of Israel. Israel within Israel, the remnant among the general population of that very special nation. We've heard them before in chapter 59. We've heard them confessing their sins to God, both corporately and congregationally. And after they had prayed like that, they had a repeated promise from God of final salvation. Then Isaiah gave us that fuller description of what new Zion would look like. There Isaiah promised a renewed church that would enjoy that inheritance. And finally, in the beginning of this chapter, we saw the last judgment that would finally eradicate evil, put it as far away as it's possible to put it from us so that new Zion would not be like Eden, 
vulnerable to falling again, New Zion would be eternally peaceful and secure, a city, the city of God forever. Well, here in verse 7, we hear the voices of faith, that is, the people who believe those promises, as they turn their voices, even their complaining voices, to their promise-keeping God. And what kind of prayer is it? It's a prayer that marvels at the mercy of God. If your Bible is open, if you turn back or glance over to chapter 62 and verse 6, you'll discover there that part of God's zeal, His energy and enthusiasm for His coming glory, the glory that He promises, part of God's zeal to do that is to establish right now, right now, uh, watchmen intercessors who would, as if they were standing at the gates of New Zion, but from a distance, give the Lord no rest until all His promises were fulfilled. They're described as those who call on the Lord, in rem- to who put the Lord in remembrance and give the Lord no rest, give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That was God's plan. God's plan was to have people, people like us, people like us that would day and night never be silent, people like us who would put the Lord Himself in remembrance. In remembrance of what? In remembrance of His own promises. Put the Lord in remembrance and take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That is until He keeps His promises. What is the business of the church here? The business of the church is this, to do what we find this man doing in verse 7 when he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. He is saying, I'll I'll recount it. I'm going to go over this in prayer to remind myself and to remind God of what God has promised to us, His people. And what we have in this section here, beginning in verse 7 and then running into verse chapter 64, is one of the most expressive prayers in all of the Bible. Now, today we're looking only at these verses, down to 14, and there are two lessons that we learn about the prayer of the believer here. We learn, first of all, that the believer's prayer starts with adoration. It's true to say that Bible prayers generally start with God's people talking to God about God. They focus first and foremost on the truth about God to whom they bring their needs. Very often they start by recalling the acts of God, what God has done in creation or in history or in redemption. Here is the prophet praying on behalf of the church. Listen to him. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. 
Do you see what is uppermost in this man's mind as he represents all of us in the church of God? Uppermost in his mind is the steadfast love of the Lord. He mentions it twice in that verse at the beginning and at the end. The steadfast love of the Lord. That translates one word in Hebrew, the word chesed. It refers to the undeserved covenant mercies of God. It presupposes that this Lord is the great King who has established a covenant relationship, who has drawn up a treaty with His people, these people that He has conquered by His love. He embraces them. He draws up a treaty, and in that treaty He enshrines His promises to them and their duties to Him. And He has promised in this treaty that in all His dealings with these people, over against everyone else, in His dealings with these people, His attitude towards them always will be the attitude of covenant mercy and covenant love. This is one of the big words of the Bible. It's one of the great words of the entire Scripture. The undeserved covenant mercies of God, the steadfast love of the Lord. It's celebrated in the Psalms and elsewhere. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And you'll notice the second reference there is plural, according to the, the abundance of His steadfast mercies or His steadfast love. We're not just thinking of one act of love. We're not just thinking of one I love you. We're thinking of a whole attitude, a whole life, a whole experience of being the objects of the steadfast love of the Lord that never, ever fails. And because we're in that relationship with God, because we're in that covenant relationship with God, we will never be excluded from His steadfast love. Now, what, what is that steadfast love? How does it show itself? In the text, it gives you some clues. The, the next phrase, for example, in verse 7, is the phrase, the praises of the Lord. What is it about the Lord that the people praised Him for that caused them to praise Him? Well, it was His acts, the things that He did, His deeds, His actions, he had caused the world to come into existence. Well, we're grateful for that. We wouldn't exist if God didn't call us into existence. If He did not give us life, we would not have life. Everything we are, everything we have, life and health and being, all of that, it comes from His hand. He made us. We are His. But it's not only that He calls the world into existence, He calls His church into existence. It was by the mighty act of God that Israel became a people. He refers right in the very middle of that verse to the house of Israel. That's who's on the Lord's mind. That's the object of His steadfast love. It's the house of Israel. It's the people of God. And God has acted for them according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel, that He granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. You think of all the actions of God in bringing Israel into existence. 
in choosing them to be his people. He calls them into existence and he gives them all the benefits they enjoyed according to his compassion. But there's something else about this word, chesed. This steadfast love is not only love over, shown over the long haul, but it's love shown in face of stout resistance and outright rebellion by the beloved. You know, there are people who complain that when they read the Bible, when they read the Old Testament, there's always some kind of wrath or anger being shown, or there's some discipline or chastisement or punishment being applied to the people of God, and they, they think it's all about anger and all about wrath and all about chastisement. But if you were to interview the people, God's people in the Old Testament, if you listen to the things they said or prayed or wrote, do you know the amazing thing is that they actually don't focus on the wrath and the anger and the chastisement and the discipline and the punishment. No, when you listen to them pray, as you do here in this, in this particular prayer, what, what surprised them, what delighted them was the Lord's kindness, was His steadfast love. And one of the ways in which they saw the steadfast love of God in action, one of the ways in which they saw the kindnesses of God enduring right through their, their life and experience was against the background of their own failure and their own sin and their repeated flaws and repeated failures. They saw that, that in fact, God had not treated them as they deserved, even when He was disciplining them, even when He was chastising them or rebuking them. He was not treating them as they deserved. He was always being kind. He was always being compassionate. He was never failing in showing to them his steadfast love. He always treated them better than they deserved and better than their behavior warranted. So he's reflecting, you see, on the goodness and the love of God. He had made them his people. You look at verse 8, and there you have a repetition of a, a great covenant promise that God made with Israel and makes with His church today. I will be your God. You will be my people. He had said that to Israel. He'd made Israel His people. He put His name upon Israel. He'd given them His name and His protection, and He had loved Israel the way He loves His church today. He had always loved them. Not only had he loved them, but he'd made them his people and his children. He loved them as a father loves his family. God is a father to his people. And behind that covenant promise, there's a great doctrine that we call the doctrine of the election. He had chosen them to be his people. He had chosen them to be his adopted children. Adoption by God's election is there right from the very beginning of God's dealings with his people. So there you have this classic covenantal formula. God had entered into a covenant relationship with His church. And in that covenant relationship, He'd made promises of what He would do. Things, obligations that He took upon Himself. And He recites those obligations and how He had fulfilled His side of the bargain. He became their Savior, verse 8. When they were in trouble, what did he do? He came, he turned up, he came to rescue them. He was the rescuer they needed. When they were in Egypt, when they were in bondage in Egypt, 
He turned up and he delivered them through the hands of Moses. He delivered them from their bondage. When they found themselves closed up at the dead end of the Red Sea, he turned up and he rescued them by parting the Red Sea and bringing them safely over. When they were in the desert and they were dying of hunger and thirst, he turns up and he rescues them by providing manna in the morning and water from the rock. When they're confronted by the River Jordan, he opens, stops the river and enables them to cross into the Promised Land. When they're in the Promised Land and they're being attacked through that whole period of the judges by one enemy after another, he raises up judges and through those judges he saves and rescues his people. And supremely from our perspective, when the fullness of time came, God acted to deal with the problem at the very root of all of our human problems, the problem of sin, and through his own self in his Son, Christ our Savior. By his own self and by his own arm and through his own strength, he rescued us from sin and death and hell by his own power. He has kept his side of the covenant agreement as our great liege lord and king. He has acted to save and rescue his people. He's kept his covenant obligations. But more than that, it goes deeper than that. Not only was he the rescuer, look at verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He not only identified with us and empathized with us in the struggles. He entered into it. He totally identified with his people in their affliction. When the Lord Jesus comes into the world, what does he do? He identifies with his people in the most ultimate sense you can imagine by taking on himself our humanity. He put on our skin and bone. He became human in order that he might be able to look you and I in the, in the face and call you brother, sister in the family of God. He took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful is our Redeemer's love for His people. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. In every, in every pain that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. You touch His people, you touch Him. Saul of Tarsus learned that lesson in the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? You're killing them, but you're killing me by killing them. I say to you, child of God, there is no pain that you suffer, no affliction you're enduring, no period of difficulty that you're going through that your Lord and Savior, your Redeemer in Christ does not say to you in all your affliction, I am afflicted. And he sent the angel of his presence. Do you notice this? Verse 9 again. In the angel of his presence saved them. This is a great prophecy and prediction by the way of the work of the Messiah, but it's also an indicator that he was at work long before he became incarnate. 
Long before he came, became flesh, he was present and active to rescue his people. How does God the Father rescue his people except through God the Son? And so the great rescuer that saved Israel from bondage and preserved them from dying in the desert, the water from the rock that sustained them there, the commander of the Lord's army that led them to victory when they entered the promised land was none other than this person, the angel, the messenger of his presence, literally the messenger of his face, the one who was face-to-face communion with God, the one who, when he is present, makes God's presence present with his people. That in this angel of the presence, God himself is visibly present. This is as God has described, one, one scholar describes him as God's alter ego, the angel of the covenant, the Son of God who comes in the Father's name to be the Father's presence and to do the Father's work, the image of the invisible God. And ultimately, he would come into the world not only to take our humanity, but to go to the waters of baptism and to say to John the Baptist who said to him, you need to baptize me, I I can't baptize you. And he says to John the Baptist, you must baptize me, for I must fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to identify with these sinful people, identify with these sinful human people, taking my place among them so that on the cross I might take their place and die for their sins. In his love, Isaiah goes on, and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah is reflecting on the past of the people of God and saying, do you know, he was with them, leading them. He was with them, caring for them. And even when they didn't realize it themselves, when all their reserves were gone, when all their joys had evaporated, when they were at their lowest and were not even conscious of the, of the decisions they were making day by day because of the overwhelming burden of sorrow that they were experiencing, I was carrying them. I was carrying them. There's a great reassurance in that, child of God. It's the reassurance that your heavenly Father will never let you go and never let you down. There's a word used in that verse, by the way, this word love there. It's only used this once in the whole of Isaiah. It's a very warm, affectionate word, a word that delights in the companionship of the loved one. God is saying, I feel so close to you. I am with you every minute of the day. By my Holy Spirit, I never am away from you. I cannot help myself but be with you all the time, every moment, in every circumstance, till the very end. I will never leave you or forsake you. This loving Father pities his children. That's the gentle pity that spares them and lifts them and carries them. This is our God. What a good and fatherly God he is to his people.
Now, there are days, brothers and sisters, when you need to come and reflect on God and start there before you go rushing into your particular problem or need or prayer request for that day. Take time to ponder this great God who is your God in Christ. But you notice it doesn't stop there, sadly. But as we shall see graciously, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say to speak about the believer's prayer that continues with confession. Begins in adoration, continues with confession. I said that God kept his side of the bargain. He's always been there for his people. He's rescued them, protected them, done all that's necessary to bring them on. Big question is, have they done their bit? Look at verse 6 again. Let's go back there. Surely they are my people, children, my children. That's what they are. That doesn't change. I'm going to turn up and save them. I'm going to carry them. I'm going to be present with them. And I'm going to lift them up when they need lifted up. Surely they won't deal falsely. You would think not. You would think that with such a heavenly father, with such a faithful friend, that the church of God would be faithful to her Lord. Then we come to verse 10. And it begins with this strong disjunctive. But, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. You know the history of humanity is the history of ongoing rebellion of man against God. But here we, have, here we have something far worse than that. Here we have rebels who should know better. Here we have people who have known God's love and loving kindness. And here they are rebelling against the God they know. They're rebelling against their father and their liege lord, their king. This word to rebel means provocative revolt. It's intentional rebuff, a slap in the face in spite of kindnesses shown. You know the story of Israel. Indeed, the story of the whole church of God, Old Testament and New Testament, right up to today, is the story of immense grace on God's part and immense ingratitude on our part it's the story of unrequited love. Isaiah's contemporary Hosea would paint the picture of unrequited love most clearly in the experience of that prophet. And as Isaiah reviews the history of God's people, of Israel especially, he observes that as much as that history is marked by the steadfast love of the Lord that never fails, it is also marked by the spiritual wandering and blindness of his people. They have proved false they have dealt falsely with their God. Look at the language that he uses there in verse 10. They have rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Twice the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And once he is called the Spirit of the Lord. There in verse 10 and 11 and 14. 
And by the way, you don't have to dig very far in this passage until you see the members of the Trinity involved in this whole process. You have the Lord, you have the Lord's messenger, the messenger is face-to-face with the Lord, and you have now the Holy Spirit. And the characteristic of everything here is that the Spirit is holy. Isaiah spent a lot of time telling us God is holy. He is the living God. He is transcendent. He is greater than we are, and yet He can come close to us and be at our hand. He is righteous, that He is utterly sinless. And yet all of this same language, here in chapter 53 of Isaiah and in chapter 51 of the Psalms, is applied to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the personality and the very character of God Himself. You grieve the Spirit, you grieve God. The Spirit is holy in Himself. He is able to produce holiness in the lives of the people of God. And in Psalm 106, the rebellion of Israel is said to have been against the Spirit of the Lord. Now look at verse 10 again. Therefore, He, the Lord, turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. The scholar Westerman puts it like this, to grieve God's goodness is to assail His holiness. The nerve center of all that happens in history consists in the fact that when God's holiness has been wounded, things cannot go on as they are. Let me read that again. When God's holiness has been wounded, things cannot go on as they are. You apply that. You apply that outside of church for a moment. You apply that to a a country built on Protestant principles, which from the earliest days of its existence has heard the Word of God preached from its pulpits, has had the Word of God circulated by its press, has seen the Word of God on telecasts more recently and on the radio. A country that has not been able to avoid the Word of God for nearly 300 years. If that country should reject the Word of God, if that country should reject the gospel proclaimed by its churches on every street corner, it seems in every town and village. Then listen to this. When God's holiness has been wounded, things cannot go on as they are. And what is true of a country is true of the church. Even more true because it's written here about the church of God. He became their enemy. Now, in what sense can God become the enemy of the church? By removing the comfortable sense of His presence. See, what are we doing? You you look around us now at America today or Europe or anywhere where the church is languishing in our day. And what will you see? You will see hyperactivity. You will see a a fantastic craving to recreate a feeling, an atmosphere. A megachurch 
gives you that sense. A megachurch gets as many people as possible together. It cranks up the energy. What's it doing? It's trying to reproduce something that has been lost to the church. Whether we use classical music or contemporary music or rock music or funk music or whatever kind of music we want, we're trying to reproduce something that we have lost. What have we lost? We have lost the feeling sense of the presence of God that you don't have to work up. It is there simply because God is there by His Spirit. What we find here is this very thing as you read on. In verse 11, they're asking questions. Where is He? Where is He? That's the way it feels like. So we try to reproduce it ourselves. We try to work it up ourselves. And we get frustrated because it doesn't do it. It does it for a little while, and then we need something else. We need need another fix. We need another shot in the arm to get us going. Brothers and sisters, we don't need any external means of cranking up our emotion. What we need, what we need to cry to heaven for, is that God Himself would come and meet with His people. That there would be amongst us a sense of God, the awesome sense of God as we worship. And as the Puritans said, the comfortable sense, the comfortable sense that God is on my side. Now you see, He is on my side. But what happens, you see, when I have rebelled against Him or when the church has rebelled against Him is that we lose that corporate sense, that feeling sense that He's on our side. It's like when your mother gave you into trouble and then walked away. And you really wished that she'd stayed and shouted at you or belted you in the ear or something. And she didn't say anything. And actually, that's worse than being given a row. That kind of thing. And sometimes God withdraws his comforts from his people. Where are you? Where are you? Where is he? Then in the midst of the discipline, there is a shift goes on. Look at it in verses 10 and 11. They rebelled, they grieved, he turned, he remembered. This is his own decision, by the way, his own action. He turns his mind to his promises. You understand we're talking in language that's accommodated to our understanding broken down to baby language for our grasping. He turned. He remembered. Now, it's interesting that in doing so, he put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. Now, the mention of the Holy Spirit here in the context is is interesting for this reason. There's a kind of reflection or connection between the Spirit here and the cloud of fire and smoke that you read about in the Old Testament, the Shekinah, the glory of God that followed Israel, remember, went before them when they crossed over the the Dead Sea, went before them in the desert, went before them to the borders of the Promised Land. Whenever they camped, it 
was suspended above and over the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And then hundreds of years later, when they built the temple, that glory, the Shekinah glory, fell and rested in the Holy of Holies in the temple. In the Old Testament, that Shekinah, that glory cloud, is associated with the work of the Spirit. So when, for example, Moses in his song is describing the work of God and the work of that glory cloud, the Shekinah, he says this, He, the Lord, found them in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wing, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. It's a picture of that glory cloud being there, protecting them, caring for them, ready to catch them if they fell. And that's echoing the language of Genesis 1, over the earth that was formless and empty, where darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Moses is referring back to that language that he'd written when he was writing Genesis about the Holy Spirit. So the cloud is a visible representation of the work of the Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, when they're all gathered waiting for the Spirit, when the Spirit falls, it's like a, a mini, a mini tongue of fire, a column of fire landing on the heads of the disciples as they wait. The glory has come, and so Peter can say, writing to believers, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Whatever the church is gathered, the glory of God is with them. And so you can see Isaiah doing the very same thing here. He identifies the cloud and the Spirit who brought them through the sea, who was among them, verses 11 to 14, who was God's glorious arm of power, who divided the waters, who gave the people rest, who guided the people, and gave them a glory, gave God a glorious name. In other words, to be led protected and instructed by the cloud, was to be led, protected, and instructed by the Spirit. Because at stake were heavenly and divine things, the name and the honor of God Himself. Now, in recalling His exploits on behalf of His people, people who pray are to remember His mighty acts. That's really the the thrust of the message there in, in verses 11 and 12 caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. You think of every obstacle, slavery in Egypt, the Red Sea, starvation in the desert, the lack of water, the River Jordan, the enemies in the land, Balaam's incantations, Pharaoh's army, the gods of Egypt, no obstacle, earthly or heavenly, earthly or supernatural, could impede the progress of the people of God. He led them through the depths. He led them like a horse galloping in open country where it did not stumble, or like a shepherd who brings his flocks from the high mountains down into the lush pasture land below. So the Spirit of God gave them rest in the promised land. 
from our perspective, there's an even greater work, the work in which the Spirit of God, landing on the Savior, enabled the Savior to do this great work of rescuing us from all our enemies, overcoming all our enemies, bringing us into that rest that belongs to the people of God. Now, let me, let me back off and, and ask a question then this morning. Has God changed? Is the way God dealt with Israel changed in the way He deals with us today? We look at this passage and we can say this. We are His people and we are His children. We're His people by His promise and we're His children by adoption. And He calls us the sheep of His pasture. That hasn't changed. We belong to God. God belongs to us. He has not withdrawn that title or that name from us. His name is still a glorious name, a name of divine beauty, and it rests upon His people. And though the church, though we, frequently fail and always sin, He has never withdrawn His presence utterly. He may hide His face from us, He may not look at us when we have rebelled, leaving us feeling shame and uncomfortable. Like when someone we've hurt and grieved will not look us in the eye, and we're longing that they would. We're longing that they would just catch our eye. Sometimes he turns his face away, but he has never forsaken his people. He has never ceased to be there. And if you fall, if you find yourself, as it were, coming to the edge of the precipice, and it feels to you as if in your life and experience there is nothing for you to clutch onto, nothing for you to get a grip of, He will never let you fall utterly, irredeemably. And finally, He will never do that. He will never leave you or forsake you. And He will finally bring you to that heavenly rest and that final peace that we seek. So what should we do? Brothers and sisters, this is what we should do. We should learn from these folks in the, in the Bible that we should start with God. Instead of starting where we are with our problem, we should start with God and reflect on who He is. George Muller was a man who had 2,000 orphans to feed, clothe, and cared for. He was entirely dependent on Christian people supporting him in his work. And like many in his day, the 19th century, he felt that God should, that he should not advertise his work or ask for or appeal for funds. We might wish people <laughs> copied his example. So every day, George Muller was dependent on God. He would come to God every day in prayer. He'd open his Bible, he'd read the Bible, and he would turn what he read into godly meditation and praise, even before he mentioned his own needs or those of the children who were dependent upon him. And that's our calling as the church of God. What we really need, in a sense, is to forget about ourselves and concentrate on him and worship him. 
What we really need to do is to say to ourselves, well, yeah, those are legitimate things that I want to be asking God about, but first of all, I've got to be talking to Him about His name, His kingdom, and His will. And once I get my head around that, once that gets to be the most important thing in my mind, I'm going to discover that other things will fall into place. I'll begin to know what to do in this situation. I'll begin to know which route to take in terms of the next step in my life. I will know what is morally what is right and what is, what is economically required. I will know these things, not because I've had a word from God telling me, do this or do that, but because now I know God better, it clears my head, it focuses my gaze It recalibrates what is important in my life, that God and God alone is the most important thing in my life. We start with God. Because we start with God, we believe this. God will yet be a friend to truth. When truth is dismissed in the public square, when truth is dismissed in some of our seminaries, when it's dismissed in many of our churches, when truth is regarded as nonsense or as regarded as irrelevance and even is regarded as a downright lie, when truth is disregarded, God will yet be a friend to truth. And in the final day, truth will out and truth will win. For God has enshrined that day in His purposes, and His people will share the glory that is to come. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would enable us to recalibrate our thinking to the degree that we think highly of You and allow that thought of You to shape everything else that we are in our lives. We pray your blessing, Lord, upon your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.